Jem. You're watching episode 14 of the of the Life of Jem live video podcast. This is being filmed live from my home in the Inland Empire. My producer, DJ April Duran, is here silently, and I have an amazing special guest today. My good friend, acclaimed writer, thinker, Macundista, and Tejana Cecilia Baye. But first, a word from our sponsor, Hotbox Vintage. I'm back. So today we have a special show with my friend Cecilia Baye. She's one of my writing inspirations. And trivia, she has a twin sister just like I do. We're going to be talking writing, the Macondo Writers Workshop, Texas, and more. This show is titled Changing the Narrative. And mostly we're going to talk about how Cecilia works on changing the narrative discourse about the border of Texas. I so, so love this topic because for me, a girl from the Inland Empire, I've always tried to change the negative stereotyping and stigma around the Inland Empire. I am an Inland Empire girl, and you know I love my hometown. So as you know, I usually read an essay to start, but today I'm going to change it up. And I'm going to pose a question that we're going to revolve our discussion around. And I wrote that this prompt this morning. What is home? And is a hometown that you love a healthy tether to the past? Or is it a way of avoiding of writing about your future? And when you leave home, as many of us wanderers do, do you ever really leave? Or do you, like James Joyce in Ireland, always end up coming home either literally or figuratively in your writing? And how do we as writers who love our hometowns write about place with sincerity and truth while also trying to undo the negative stereotypes about our place we call home, whether it be Texas, Mexico, California, or anywhere else? Now let me introduce my guest, Cecilia Baye. I'm so excited to have her on. Cecilia Baye is a magazine journalist and a cultural anthropologist who has written about the U.S.-Mexico border and Latinos in Texas for more than two decades. She is the founder and principal of Culture Concepts, a strategic and creative consulting firm that provides ethnographic research cultural analysis, storytelling, and strategic messaging. Cecilia is a writer at large for Texas Monthly, the first Latino or Latino one, and has written for many publications, including Harper's Magazine, Columbia Journalism Review, and the New York Times. As an anthropologist, Cecilia was a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and she's conducted research on Tejano identity and culture, as well as on the sexual killing of women in Juarez, 
as well as on the U.S.-Mexico border wall and Latino voter participation. She has won many journalism awards, and her writing has appeared in anthologies, including Best American Crime Writing and Echo and Tejas, an anthology of Texas Mexican literature. I probably butchered that. Um, she has been a fellow and has held multiple residencies. She's a native of Brownsville, and she began her reporting career at the Brownsville Herald and the San Antonio Express News. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and a PhD from Rice University. Welcome, Cecilia. What a resume. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for that generous introduction. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I think you're so good at this. And so I've been looking forward to it all week. So I've got my tequila ready. Yeah, so let's talk about how we met. I met you through your twin sister, Saria, who's a lawyer that roomed with me during law school. And once I graduated law school, I moved to Houston for a law firm job. And you were at Rice University getting your PhD. And we had this immediate connection. Maybe it was a twinship thing. Maybe it was the writing thing. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about that. You mentioned it to me. And, and you know, um, the thing that came to mind for me is that we are both seekers and we both like like to go very deep, whatever we're talking about. If it's lighthearted or if it's serious, uh, if it's happy or sad, you know, we just kind of like to dig really deep and open up. And I feel like you're one of those people that um, it was very easy to connect to and you just opened up uh, very quickly and there was a lot of trust and you were hilarious. You were such a good storyteller. We had no idea you were going to become a writer at the time. And now it all makes perfect sense. But um, I was like, we were hanging on your every word when we would hang out. We just like, we want to see Juanita again because she tells these amazing stories. Like, we could just listen to them forever. <laughs> oh, that's so kind because, you know, you were such an inspiration to me. I so admired your tenacity and your work ethic and your um, how accomplished you were in your writing and uh, the deadlines you would have to meet. And I was always just fascinated by you watching you have to write these, you know, long form pieces and work for weeks or months on stuff. I mean, it's been amazing to really see you grow too. Um, When I met you, you were getting your PhD in anthropology. How does that PhD in anthropology influence the lens that you write with? For me, they're completely merged, my anthropology and my journalism, and I see them as very close cousins. Uh, So, you know, I'd always been a journalist. I started writing for my hometown paper as a high school senior, and that was my whole goal was to be a lifelong journalist. And then I went to college, and my professors encouraged me to do research. And But there was a class I took my junior or senior year uh, where we read a book by Jose Limon, who is a Chicano anthropologist, the Tejano anthropologist, his book, Dancing with a Devil. And it reads like a fiction novel. Uh, it's so beautifully written. It's so lyrical. and But it was getting, you know, just into like this very fine-tuned examination of Tejano dancing and, and Tejano culture, Mexican-American culture and history in South Texas. And I was like, that's anthropology? I want to do anthropology, you know? It just was like, a, to me, like a much more immersive 
experience that journalism had given me, but this allowed you to just go back over and over to the same people, the same community. And to like, I've always been a social observer that, so my journalism is, it's, I've never just been driven by the news. In fact, I don't mm. think, I don't think I do best with breaking news. That was never my forte. Um, I like to understand a place socially and culturally and so that's what anthropology allows me to do. But then journalism allowed me to be engaged with a public audience and to just yeah. be like have a voice in, on public issues when they're happening. And so the two things together to me are really powerful. Uh, it's hard for me yeah. not to between the two. That's magical. And you know what's funny about that? And it just struck me is that I had um, really worked at putting two separate worlds. I was a lawyer and then I was starting to write. Once I merged those two is when all the magic happened. Right. That's interesting. You say that I think working at the intersection of different spaces and boundaries Mm -hmm. is always the most interesting like you. And I can't even tease out which part of me thinks one way or another, Mm -hmm. but bringing those different ways of thinking and seeing the world that I think gives you an opportunity to create something a little different and have a little bit of a different mark um, that you leave with your work, hopefully, and with your ideas. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I continue to this, even though I'm not an academic at a university, I decided to launch this consultancy so that I could keep being an anthropologist and doing research because I love that as as much as I like writing narratives. yeah, and uh, you and I, me, you and I are very similar in the sense that we always have our, you know, hands in a bunch of different pots. Um, you wrote for Texas Monthly for years and years, and you were actually the first writer for them that was Latino or Latina. Is that right? What was that like? Yeah, that's correct. And it, it gosh, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how many years they had been in existence, but a very long time. So Texas Monthly became this classic. Um, publication in Texas, and it was recognized nationally as one of the best writers' magazines back in the day. They just were b- bringing in these amazing writers that went on to write for the New Yorker, and and they were just writing these beautiful long form stories. Uh, but it was very much Texas Monthly was, and and some people would say to some degree it continues to be the Anglo gaze on Texas, the white gaze mm. on Texas. And they did have stories on the border sometimes, but they tended to be kind of like they fed this these this repeated old tropes like of the border and like the red light districts across the border in Mexico and or some kind of crime that was committed and someone goes down there to explore this crazy border town. You know, it was just like these and, and they were good stories, but they were always written through that gaze. And so they had not had any writer that was non-white. Um, they were founded in, I want to say 76. I hope I'm correct on that. And I joined, I started writing for them in 2000. So, you know, 24 years later, uh, they still had not had anyone. And, you know, it was fortuitous, kind of a lucky break that got me where someone put me in touch with the editor. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I know we'll be talking a lot more about what we do with that work and how we try to change that gaze and that narrative, but um, it's been an interesting ride writing for them, like trying trying yeah. to change that perception and that representation of where I come from. Yeah, and that's so interesting because you know those cowboy tropes, but then co- of Texas contrasted with this stereotypical view of Mexican culture and Tejano culture, and you were able to bring the personal and the the truth behind what they were 
you know, kind of depicting from the white gaze. But I was always so drawn in by your writing. And I remember one piece you did specifically. I mean, you did so many great pieces about the women of Juarez and um, other issues and about music. But I remember this one that was a memoir piece that was called All About My Mother. And that piece, much like how Frank McCourt and other memoirists just made me, and David Sedaris made me want to be a writer, like that piece was like, oh my gosh, this is, this, people can write these stories and they touch you in a place that is so deep and profound, like reading James Baldwin now, you know, you're like, wow, he's writing about his father's death and he's contrasting it with the racial strife. And it means so much now. When I read your piece all about my mother, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to write like this. I want to write like this. Thank you. That means so much to me because that, of course, that is one of the most meaningful pieces of my life because it was about my mother, right? And um, I I had a hard time at first coming from newspapers. I had a difficult time writing in first person much Mm -hmm. less writing about my own life and my family life. But it was interesting when I wrote pieces that were in first person, even if it was like a light first person where I'm just the guide, you know, the narrator, um, people responded more. People would write letters. And and I think there's something about that intimacy that that readers develop with a narrator that's present and that has a voice. Um, You know, they choose to trust you or not trust you and follow you through the story. But when they do, then it feels more intimate. But that piece, I had actually written it as a submission for an anthology on um, women of color, like writing about their version of feminism. And it was a story about how my mom, who was, you know, um, had a seventh grade education in Mexico and she worked as a cook um, in, in Brownsville on the border, how she was my role of a feminist woman. And it was different from the kind of feminism I was learning about at Stanford, you know, uh, but she was at the core of who we became. And so after I wrote it for that anthology, my editors, and I showed it to one of my editors at the magazine, and they asked if they could run it in a special issue that they were publishing on Texas women. And so they had like Nora Jones and all these other amazing women featured. And then they had the essay on my mom, which was, of course, super sweet for me. But, um, you know, one interesting moment was that uh, I think that piece, like, some of my other pieces are very grounded in like the history of South Texas and the border and the culture. Um, And that piece probably is a bit more reaches at the universal. I like to think that I tried to reach towards the universal in all pieces, but you know, that one, um, a dear friend of mine, Jan Reed, who was a longtime writer for Texas monthly, who grew up in a very different background, you know, white writer. He came up to me and said, you know, I could see my mom in your piece And and that's when I knew that we could reach beyond that. You can write something that is very like culturally and historically specific. And it can also reach way beyond that. Kind of like what you said about James Baldwin. Not that I'm comparing myself to him, but that I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's about reaching that personal. And, you know, I saw a lot of my mom in your piece and we're both very close to our moms and my mom was a waitress and uh, worked at Circle K graveyard shift while I was growing up and worked a lot, a lot, a lot, and was always tired and exhausted and chasing down my dad at a bar and he owned a bar and then running the bar with him. And my mom, you know, in my early writings, my dad was the hero. In my later writings, uh, my mom is the hero. or She's the one that kept the family together. And I know your dad died when you were young from uh, nose cancer and your mom basically raised you and your two sisters 
by herself. And all, you know, all of you have done very well. It's just a testament to your mom who's amazing. I mean, when I read the piece, the fact that I knew your mom, it meant even more to me. Um, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's another thing that probably drew you and I towards each other, very similar family circumstances with a very strong woman and two sisters. And it's, it's like the powerful people in the family are the women, right? Um, my father died when I was 10 going on 11 and, um, he came from this world, this culture of Mexican ranches in Northern Mexico where like they're raised to be, you know, sort of like the head of household and sort of the heroes, And um, this is going to sound a little harsh, but, you know, he unfortunately had a very difficult life where he he then moved to to Texas and became a a cab driver. And then he was sick for five years. And and so, you know, then ultimately uh, succumbed to to his illness. And there's a way in which not just in our family, but all of my families, my cousins, families like the women. There's like this story on the border that I've been thinking about. How do I write about this someday? We're like. It's this macho world, macho culture where the men are, are, are put up as the heroes, but the ones who persist um, are the women. And they survive through these really difficult circumstances, whether it be something in the family, alcoholism or, or, or domestic violence to, you know, the terrible things happening in the communities where people are being abducted and related to, you know, the drug underworld and the women. I still write about the women. They're the ones who persist. They are. I remember my memoir professor last semester, Richard Goodman, who's a great memoirist from New York. He told me, you know, your dad was Don Quixote, but your poor mother, you know, she had to live with that, with someone chasing windmills in their dreams and losing everything, losing the house, losing the bar, you know, and my that's you're right. You know, the the females are the ones who keep this all together. I mean, at least in our opinion. <laughs> yes. And I really sympathize. My heart goes out to my dad and his brothers and all the men on the border. You know, I went on to do this work on the killing of women in Ciudad Juarez. And, and my anthropological conclusion about that was that like the people that were in crisis, you know, we focus on the women because they were the victims of these horrific crimes and total impunity. But it was the men who were going through like this crisis of masculinity where the world that they had been raised in and the and the rituals by which they had been expected to become men were shifting or disappearing. Kind of like my dad, who was raised to be this ranchero. And then the options he had to make a living were not that, you know. And so yeah. like the men are actually uh, I think they deal with the hardship and they suffer in silence. And like women have this ability to still reach out to each other and reach out to their children. And so I actually really feel for the men because I think there's like this huge burden on them um, culturally about what roles to play. And at the same time, the worlds they live in are not allowing them to become the kind of men they're supposed to become. And so it's complicated. And right now there's been a reckoning, you know, with Me Too and all of that. Um, You know, it, it must be very hard to be a man. I'm not excusing bad behavior, but when you're raised a certain way, and you're told to be strong and powerful and, you know, be this and be that. And then the world tells you to be a different way. And no one's ever told you how to be that way. And I, so, I mean, I think it would be hard to have a son right now. And it would be hard to be a man. But I like the fact that I'm a woman. Because <laughs> we roll yeah. yeah, like we struggle in all these other ways much harder. Mm-hmm. But, but I love, you know, that we do have the gifts that we do and the resources that we have leaning on each other. 
Yeah. Um, we just had a comment by Carol Lee Lessinger. Cecilia, do you do something online that might help fourth grade writing classes? It just occurred to me seeing this tonight. You would be so good at that. Yes, you would. Oh, that's great. Carol's actually an old teacher, a former teacher from Brownsville that we reconnected on Facebook. And it was so exciting because she was reminding me of like who we were and these my sister and my friends and I and this uh, show we did on stage, which is like a beautiful trip down memory lane. So I really appreciate, I really appreciate that Facebook has allowed me to connect with some of my teachers and educators and principals from when I was young. Um, oh. I don't have anything for fourth, fourth grade writing classes, but there's time. We need to keep talking about how we develop curriculum uh, for young kids. That's so needed. I would have love to have grown up having access to some of these kinds of voices and stories. Mm -hmm. It's changing a bit. Like in Texas, they are instituting Mexican-American studies and some high schools. And, you know, there's there's a bit of a growth. And I think that can that really helps you to develop a positive identity and a sense of voice that then yep. you can be anywhere, you know, whatever you study, whatever you write about. Yeah. And there's a press called Cinco Punto that put out a book called Gabby in Pieces uh, from an Inland Empire writer named Isabel Quintero. And um, it's a great press. And they, um, you know, this, the way that young adult novels can reach young people and me, I write in child voice for much of my memoir. And one of my goals is that it can be read by a child and they can identify with this, you know, young girl growing up in the Inland Empire in this crazy chaotic family. And then an adult can read it and say, oh, I, I, you know, I can identify with that as well. Because young children, they need um, they need something to latch on to. When I was young, I read a lot of um, Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly and um, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And later when I was in you know, college, Sandra Cisneros and high school. Um, but, you know, we didn't really have those role mo models when we were young, the Latina. Did we? Was there anyone? I don't think so. I mean, I think that literature was starting to be published, but it hadn't trickled down to our schools, you know, mm -hmm. it, didn't, it wasn't taught in our curriculum. And so we, we had to wait until college to discover that. Yeah. yeah. Essie Hinton. Oh, my gosh. I was so obsessed with her. And she was <laughs> 16 when she wrote The Outsiders, you know. So you were reading since you were young. I wasn't that much of a reader. Like I, I just wasn't introduced much. And in we would read like Ramona Quimby and, you know, uh -huh. Sweet Valley. but like I, I didn't know what was good writing, good, good literature. Um, so I, I came to it late. It sounds like you were a pretty yeah. avid reader. Yeah. I was, but I read um, my mom's Harlequin romance novels when I was very young. She had a whole library of them. And so I had this very twisted view of romance. And I remember being in elementary school and using the word ravished. And my teacher was like, how do you know that word? <laughs> Did you tell her that you felt ravished? <laughs> yeah, I feel ravished. You know, and I read Daniel Steele when I was young. I read Gone with the Wind like three times. I used to read... Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I would go to the library and just grab a book. So yeah, I was kind of an obsessive reader. I, I used to read on my roof to escape um, or in the park. And I would just read books over and over and over. I was a little, I guess, obsessive. Obsessive is a good thing to be <laughs> for if you're a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good for everybody. I like obsessive people. I like people who know what they like and who are passionate about it. But you kind of have to have that mind to be a writer. It's like you have, you have, you have yeah. to be totally, totally absorbed in what you what you're drawn to and kind of thinking about it nonstop. That's that's the nature of the game. 
Yeah. yeah, and I remember as a kid, I would fall into books and imagine myself in the books. If it was a ward in a Harlequin romance novel or Sally Friedman or, you know, um, Deanie from Judy Bloom, uh, I would always like imagine myself into that character, which is weird now that I'm a memoirist and I write in first person. So, you know, you just never know. Sometimes it's there from a young age. Well, and, you know, that's one of the things that like later when people started calling me a writer, that I was just like, I'm not a writer. Like it, it, it was so daunting. It was so intimidating that, that, that name, that label, like I just had always identified very strongly as a journalist, but then I moved into this kind of narrative writing with Texas monthly and uh, people started calling me a writer and inviting me to write for some anthologies. And, and um, I just had this, um, I don't know of it, just this insecurity about like, I didn't grow up, you know, I used to read, you always hear writers saying that they were kids and they were reading under the covers, you know, past their bedtime. And I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up in a literary rich home. Um, I know you didn't either and you discovered it on your own, but um, we didn't, to be frank, like we didn't read many novels in my, in my schools. Um, we would read a lot from textbooks. And then I know I had like one class in middle school and one class in high school where we, where we did read full novels. Uh, but it just, so then I, I was intimidated by literature. When I went to college, I never considered studying literature. It was, it was like this kind of highbrow thing that was so far removed from my upbringing and my reality. And so I was drawn to history and anthropology, yeah. you know, and then finally kind of came to writing later. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, then you, you feel, you, you know, feel like you're your whole life. Yeah. And it goes back to that imposter syndrome. I remember um, ten, like 15 years ago, when I started writing. I was like, oh, my God, these stories are so juvenile. Like, who would want to read this? You have to, you know, and it's that imposter syndrome because we grew up blue collar, because we grew up without kind of that literary like pedigree and someone telling us to read this or that and taking us to I never got taken to a museum or anything like that when I was young. And I think. um for me, I had to realize that there's something about authenticity that matters more than pedigree. Yeah, I mean, that's what you discover, you hope, right? With time is that the thing that really matters is do you have something to say? Do you have a voice, right? And yeah. when you first start writing, um, I'm smiling because I'm looking at the text from the message <laughs> from my twin sister. Uh, I love we that. What'd she say? What'd Celia she say? Said, Hi, Juanita and Cecilia. I feel like we're sitting on the porch at the apartments on Bissonette in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to cry. Uh, just like such good memories. The three of us sitting there talking. Um, and I love that 20 years later, we can do that again, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we were talking about voice and you start writing and uh, <laughs> when I call journalism anthropology and her, um, you start writing and, and, and when you first hear about voice, like it's this kind of vague, ambiguous thing that you're like, I'm never going to have that. Like you think of voice, I feel like when you are a new writer, a young writer, you think of voice as more like the stylistic quality of someone's yeah. writing. And, and it and turns out like voice is really your take on the world and your point of view, right? And I used to tell my students later when I taught writing, uh, you think you like your favorite writers because of how pretty they write, how well they write. 
it's actually because of the way they interpret the world and what they have to tell you about it and how they tell a story. And that's what you're drawn to. And that's the thing that, you know, people growing up in blue collar backgrounds, people growing up in the Inland Empire and growing up in Brownsville, South Texas, like such unique places with their own kind of wacky histories and culture and, and, and beautiful, beautiful culture too. Um, turns out we have a few things to say yeah. <laughs> you know? and we have something different to say. And so I think that's where like the Montgomery Writers Workshop really helped to develop that confidence that what we had to say was as writerly and as interesting to a broader readership than we thought. Yeah. And speaking of that, do you want to tell people what the Macondo Writers Workshop is? Yes. Uh, so this is a, a community of writers that was founded and, and nurtured by Sandra Cisneros uh, when she was living in San Antonio many years ago. I'm not sure what year it started. I don't have that off the top of my head. But it started as a gathering of writers that was very intimate, and she would invite people she met that she wanted to support, and they would gather once a year around her kitchen table and read each other's writing. Um, and, you know, they just formed, like, this really beautiful community, and over time they started inviting other people, and it started growing, and now it still meets in San Antonio every year. But a lot of us in that group or alum, alumni of that group are um, writers of color, queer writers, people writing with a sense of social justice, um, with a sense of social critique. And uh, yeah, it's a very special community. It really is. And um, I remember when Liz Gonzalez, my friend from San Bernardino, uh, told me to apply. I was like, I can't be a part of these writers. Oh, my goodness. No. Meeting Sandra Cisneros? Never. Like, And I resisted at first because it's that imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough, right? My writing's not good enough. I haven't done enough. And she was like, just apply. And then I got in. And the first time I went, it was like I found this home away from home, you know? It's incredibly nurturing and embracing. And that's where I learned to that it was okay to start calling myself a writer. That mm -hmm. was I had already started writing for Texas Monthly, and I still didn't call myself a writer. And then when I became part of Macondo and part of that group, and that, you know, the people in that group are poets, fiction writers, nonfiction writers. I was like, oh, okay, maybe I, I, I can be a writer. I do have something to say. And uh, I actually have a pretty funny story about how I joined that. You had asked tell me that, that maybe, I, maybe I could tell you about how, how that happened. Yeah. Is that um, Texas Monthly had reached out to Sandra about doing a story on her um, years before, a few years before. There was this controversy over a historic home that she owned in San Antonio, and she painted it purple, right? And it was against like city ordinances or whatever. And Texas Monthly wanted to write about her and she told them no because they didn't have any Latino writers. And that got a lot of coverage nationally. And so, you know, it sort of put Texas Monthly in an uncomfortable negative light. And when I finally joined Texas Monthly, I was put on the masthead as a writer at large. And, I, and then I was offered a full-time position, but I was in graduate school and I decided to stay in grad school instead. So I was there kind of as a part-time writer, as a contract writer, but with a title. And they said, well, can you ask Sandra now if we can do a story on her? She was about to put out a new book. And so I reached out to her and we were at a journalist conference in San Diego, California, Hispanic Journalist Conference. And she said, I asked her there, uh, could I you know, talk to her about this? And she said, why don't we have breakfast tomorrow? Uh, wow. Like shaking, right? I mean, it's just like she's a celebrity, right? And she says, well, let's have breakfast. 
Well, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing personal story. I had lost a tooth because <laughs> I, like, I had like a root canal issue that just got out of control and I lost a tooth, right? <laughs> and so I had this like temporary crown that was bonded to my teeth while they made the, the, the permanent one. I only and- know what that is because Adrian's a dentist. I know exactly what you mean. It's like a temp. <laughs> It's like a little thing you put in, almost like a chiclet. Yeah. And so, like, she invites me to breakfast. And then, of course, you know, the night before breakfast, you know, we all go drinking. And then we're hanging out at some journalist's hotel room eating pizza. And I feel my tooth come off. (laughs) And I'm like, I have breakfast tomorrow morning with Sandra Cisneros. I can't show up without a tooth. And so I like wake up at six in the morning, you know, we had had a little too much to drink and I just start dialing. It's like a Saturday morning at six in the morning and I'm dialing every dentist in San Diego that I can find, like finding, trying to find someone who will listen to their emergency messages you know, and like be kind enough to take me early in the morning and put it back on. Long story short, I got my tooth back on. <laughs> And then we're like, hello, dentist, so-and-so, I have lunch or breakfast with a famous writer in my tooth. Like, you don't understand, you know, you've probably never had a situation like this before. Uh, And I, like, arrive at the breakfast right in time. And we talk, and Sandra tells me, sorry, you know, long story short, long story long, uh, Sandra tells me, uh, well, you know, I'm really sorry, but I still don't think Texas Monthly is doing enough, so I'm I'm not going to give the interview. And she says, but do you want to join them like on the writer's workshop? Do you want to? And I was like, I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> for sure, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, because it, it really is about finding your kinship. And uh, I really do want to get into the concept of home and um, whether Macondo's home or Brownsville or Mexico. Like, how do you talk about home and try to change that discourse, that dominant narrative, these stereotypes, the stigma? I mean, for me in San Bernardino, there's so much stigma about San Bernardino. I live in San Bernardino and other people I know have told me um, they're not writers, mostly lawyers. Why would you live in San Bernardino? Mm. What's wrong with San Bernardino? I love it. I'm right yeah. by the mountains. I love my house. I got a better deal than if I lived in Rancho Cucamonga. So, I mean, yeah, for me, I wanted to live in a diverse community. I didn't want to live in a gated community with all white people. Yeah, you know, that I, I loved, you know, it gave me chills what you said at the beginning in the introduction, writing about place with sincerity and truth and at the and you know, and expressing the kind of love we have for that place and at the same time being critical sometimes of the place or um, the thing that happened with me is like we, as you know, we grew up, I grew up on the border with my, my sister and my family. And it felt back then the Rio Grande Valley felt like it was the edge of the earth. You know, mm-hmm. this was before the internet, um, the closest city, big city was four hours away. And our, you know, our town back then was, our city was 80 something percent. Now it's like 90 something percent Mexican and Mexican American. It was very safe and, and beautiful and nurturing that way. Culturally, I was very grounded. You know, we cross the border every weekend to see my grandmother. Uh, but we knew, I knew that I came from these families that had been there forever. So no, not forever. <laughs> By European standards, it's not forever, but they'd been there since the 1700s and they had been some of the original kind of landowners in South Texas. 
and they no longer had those lands. But I didn't know the story of why, right? And there was a day when I was a junior in high school, and we had to write a paper for U.S. history class. And I was roaming around the library in Brownsville, and I came upon this book randomly that was about Juan Cortina, who was um, considered like the bandit on the border. He had been written about um, as a person who was terrorizing newcomer Anglo families. Uh, But what was happening was kind of like this racial war that emerged in South Texas as Anglo settlers came in and, you know, started sort of taking some of the lands. And there was this shift in the power structure that that caused a lot of racial violence, including lynchings of killings of Mexicans by the Texas Rangers. You know, I've learned all of this since then. But that was like the whole moral of that story of that book was there are different versions of history, but only one has been told. And I like something about the coming together of my family history and seeing that book just opened up in me. Like I'm still on that same trajectory. It's like, okay, let's, let's uncover this, these stories that we belong to. And like, at best, you know, we've been misrepresented in history and at worst, we've been completely washed out. And so now it just became like this lifelong trajectory. That's why I never moved on to other subjects because the work isn't done. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it was like, how do we, how do we insert our own voices too into the story of Texas, the story of the border? Um, yeah. And I'm still working on that to this day. Wow. And you wrote um, a number of pieces about the women of Juarez. Do you want to tell um, the people viewing what those were about and where that is now, that investigation? Yeah. So this was a you know, series of killings of women, very gruesome sexual killings of women, that young women that were happening in Ciudad Juarez. Um, you know, they were in their teens and typically they would disappear going to work or going to find a job. They wouldn't come home. And then some of their bodies started turning up in groups. Uh, so it was clear that it wow. was a, a criminal group behind it. And by the time I went and started writing about it in 2003, uh, they had been happening for at least 10 years. And I was sent by Texas Monthly to do a story. And once I wrote that story, it was like I had more questions and answers. And I changed the focus of my dissertation. And I moved to, to El Paso and did my dissertation research in Juarez. Those murders continued for a very long time. You know, there's this question of whether they're still happening as young women are still disappearing. As of some years ago, they were still disappearing in the same way. I think it's wow. involved, it involves, you know, criminal organizations, um, organized crime uh, covered up by police. You know, there's complete impunity. Uh, so it's a very devastating subject because there wasn't any progress. You know, the thing we did see was a whole emergence of a kind of, you know, a, a new wave of feminism around the that would define itself around the women's killings in Mexico. Also, a lot of U.S. Um, artists and academics that have done work on this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the that's the thing that has definitely shaped me the most as a writer and as a thinker, as an anthropologist. And it was hard. It took a toll. Yeah, I remember your story where uh, you were personally touched by the tragedy. You were um, there investigating it and you look like like kind of some of the women that were kidnapped and killed. And um, I remember just being so struck by it, like how you were able to put yourself in the shoes of these, you know, 
women. And it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And hopefully one day we'll know the truth of what really happened and who's responsible for these many murders. Um, Moving on to a different subject, you and I are both obsessed with music, and um, I love punk and post-punk. You love Tejano music, and you took me to my first Tejano bar when we lived in Texas, and you did the bachata. I can't. I think you were doing the bachata. <laughs> bachata is not Tejano. <laughs> okay. okay. You took me to a bar where there was dancing. So uh, you write a lot about music. What is it about Tejano music and um, other kinds of Spanish and Mexican music that, that gets you? You know, my sister, Christina, who's kind of like my partner in crime for Tejano. We all love Tejano. My twin sister, too. The three of us do. Uh, but my sister, Christina, one time we were at this concert a few years ago in a little club. And she goes, Tejano is church. You know, this music is church. And I think that that summarizes it best. Like, it is a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. I came upon Tejano when I was doing, you know, what a nerd. I come upon all my passions through through my research, but I was writing my my college honors thesis on Tejano musical culture and identity. And the music is this beautiful music because it's um it evolved along with the history of Mexican Americans in South Texas. And so if you follow the history of the music, like it was more rural and it was accordion based and then Mexican Americans became more middle class and more Americanized and the music became more uh, big band, you know, and then sort of veered back to accordion. And so it's this beautiful musical form that captures the story of a people. Um, And so when you come from that place and when you know the story and then you're hearing it, it's just like, it's like meditation. It's like being fully present in the moment and feeling extremely rooted. But the other thing too, is that like, I like listening to it in the car, but there's no comparison to being in one of these small clubs you know, uh, surrounded by dancers. And then the thing that's the most beautiful about Tejano is dancing. And when you, when you find a partner you click with, it's actually a very smooth dance. You glide around the dance floor. You don't hop around. Oh. And when, when you find that dance partner, I have mine in San Antonio. We're <laughs> like he's been my dance partner for 20 years. What? I have to send him a shout out. Uh, he taught me to dance and you just glide around the dance floor. And like I said, like meditation, you're just, you're nowhere else. You're, you're, well, you are, you're like, you're in this history and you're also like just so present in that moment with the people around you, the music, it's like everything comes together. And then you break the spell when you walk out, when you stumble out at two in the morning, <laughs> many Cape Cods or whatever. Well, you know, um, if you're a music person, I think regardless of genre, you do lose yourself. I've been to shows where I lose myself. I went to this punk show for the Buzzcocks and the lead singer died recently, Pete Shelley. And I was so into it that I decided I had to get to the front of the stage. And I ended up in the pit and almost got like trampled. And this woman pulled me out and like saved my life. But I mean, it's that kind of thing where I lose myself. When I go to a concert, I am dancing and singing along, whether it's to Morrissey or, um, you know, to the Buzzcocks or to my favorite punk band X from Los Angeles. Um, I just lose myself. And I, I literally forget where I am for the moment when I'm at the concert. And when it's over, you're right. It's almost like a spell's being broken and I'm waking up like Sleeping Beauty from this long slumber. And I I think you're either a music person or you're not. I know people that don't get what you're talking about, that don't get the spiritual nature of music. music. (laughs) Yeah, the spiritual nature. 
that's what it is. It's spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm laughing because like, well, that's such a funny story that you had to get saved. Like, in the, like your stories always end up somewhere on <laughs> quite funny. <laughs> oh, Priscilla Ibarra just um, commented. I love the longstanding friendship you share and you clearly have lived vibrant and engaged lives since you first met. If you could tell the version of yourself from when you first met something that you know now, what would that be? Ooh. Priscilla's getting deep. I didn't even Priscilla to ask the deep question. Priscilla was also part of our gang back then who drank those margaritas with us on the board. So it's so good to have you here, Priscilla. I would say um, that I was denying my creative self back then. I was trying to fit myself into this box of a corporate lawyer and what that looked like. And I became very depressed and um, it was very dangerous for me when I was in Texas because of that. And it was only when I moved back home that I was able to find myself again, including my punk rock self. I had even given up my music um, and I was a, like a punker when I was in high school, but I was like putting on this suit, I guess you would say literally and figuratively trying to become what I thought a Texas law firm wanted me to be. And when I told someone my dad was a truck driver and I had dropped out of high school, they said, don't tell anyone that. Wow. So what does that mean about who you have to be to fit in? It's it's basically a recipe for suicide. You are denying yourself, right? And you're denying who you are and you're trying to be something you're not. And um, it took me many years to find myself again. But I also found these friendships where I could be myself. And that's probably what saved me. My friendships with you, with your sister, Saria, with Priscilla, with Lulu. member that we're missing here yeah yeah Yeah, and you know when what you say about not being able to be yourself if you you can't write you can't be a writer if you are not yourself even if you're not writing about yourself like even if you're always just writing about other people but you have to be able to write from a place that um it's completely true to who you are Right. And I think that's something like really liberating about writing is that it allows you to to just say who you are, because I grew up, I'm a very sensitive child. I'm emotionally sensitive. And so I was embarrassed when I was growing up and our parents didn't speak English and couldn't speak to our teachers. I I loved my parents, but I was stressed out in those situations that my dad would show up at school with a cowboy hat to bring me my lunch. And I was like, I have to acknowledge that's my dad, you know. So uh, was my dad, by the way. I'm sorry. So would my dad show up at oh, my school yeah. with a cowboy hat, bringing me McDonald's. Yeah. And, you know, it's like so liberating to just be able to, uh, that writing allows you to explore yourself and to own who you are and, and where you come from. And that's that's where you write from. Um, I think for me, if I were to look back, like I was, you know, in my 20s, I, I was such, I'm so hardworking. I'm much less hardworking, by the way, now than I was then. <laughs> you were talking about how hard I worked. Um, I have high standards, but I don't work as hard as I did back then. Uh, no, I, you know, I just had been like a real good girl growing up. I, I, I just did everything to, to be in good graces with my parents and impress them and, and, and not, shake things up at all. And I remember when I started writing, I used to think, I can't be a writer. Like, you know, we'd never travel growing up. We didn't have money to travel. So, and I had this idea that writers like had seen the world and they had this depth and they would like 
you know, kind of smoke and drink with other people. I mean, I did eventually end up drinking with other people, but um, I was just like, I'm never going to have anything to write about. I don't have that depth. Mm. And, uh, oh, you know, I'll, I like just spending time on the border the next 20 years, like is more depth than you ever asked for, you know, the kinds of things that I ended up seeing and hearing and doing a lot of reporting on violence on the border, but also like the beautiful stories about culture and music. It gave me a lot of depth. And I think um, in, in terms of having something to say is, is what I'm saying, you know? Yeah. And, and the thing I wish I could tell myself too is like, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that like being a writer means suffering a lot too. It's like, it's because you go in deep, whatever you see, and you have to go there to be able to produce something and make, make meaning of something. And so it means like you choose, I, I once said this about my writing, that you have to be willing to be changed by the stories you do. That's something I would tell myself. And like, whoa, it was like, you know, it was heart wrenching. And it was like, just changed me at every level. And um, it means suffering. But it also means like having these highs when you do connect with people. And when you do make some meaning out of something, and you feel like you have something to say is like the opposite of that suffering. It's the total high, right of the high of connection and of like trying to tap into something bigger than you uh, in that little moment. Um, anyway, I'm rambling, but I just yeah, it's no, writing is hard and it's hard to open yourself up. It's hard to put yourself on the page, whether you're writing memoir or fiction or journalism. It's always, you know, your personal self and your worth is tied up in that writing. And I'm in an MFA program right now, part time, and it's very hard when people are critical. But then I have to tell myself, you're in here to get critiqued. You're not in here for people to blow smoke at you and tell you how great you are. Like, give them the story that sucks, that needs the work. I have some stories that are that I've tried to merge multiple stories into one essay or, you know, tried to switch stuff out and move stuff around. And those are the stories that I really need work on. And I've been working on my memoir for 15 years. And I'm like, I have to get this done before I die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to get it down. Well, you it's choosing to be really vulnerable. Like you decide to live a life where you're going to be vulnerable all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you don't, there's no layers to protect you. You sort of have to be able to open up and, and, yeah, what you describe right now, it's much harder than people think. Yeah. It's super, super hard. Yeah. Well, I think we're almost out of time. We have to do this again. We didn't even get through half my questions. Um, do you want to tell people what you're working on now or how they can contact you? Sure. I know I've been super bad about getting my website up. It'll be up in the next month or two. Uh, com, but it's not up yet. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter. Uh and I'm on Facebook, and my email is ceciliabaye at gmail.com. Um, I am developing some new projects. You know, I did uh, um, a lot of research, anthropological research on Latino voters, and I'm considering how to expand that. Uh, there's a personal piece I would love to write about uh, I mean, I don't know that I should talk about it when I, I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, it's not out yet, but you know, I have one uncle living out of 10 siblings. My father was the first to die of his brothers. And now there's one person living and he wow. looks so much like my dad. He he always, it was eerie when I would see him because he reminds me of my dad. And I kind of want to, I want to write this piece of the last man standing of this generation from the border, from the rancho life oh. 
that has been, you know, kind of receding. And as we all acculturate and become Mexican-Americans, I think there's there's a story there that, that I really want to do. But yeah, I got, I got goosebumps right now. I literally got mm-hmm. shivers on both my arms. Please write that story. And I have to write it. Yeah, it's definitely something. Uh, it's a theme that I've been sort of reflecting on all my adult life. But now with this one uncle left, I'm like, this is the moment to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And ironically, like a number of my uncles suffered from Alzheimer's. And so there's also that kind of the metaphor of forgetting and, and, you know, this, this, these memories you want to hold on to. Yeah. Um, And to the extent you can do an oral uh, recorded conversation with him, you know, I was planning on interviewing my mom's best friend, my aunt Tilly right before she died and then she passed. So this stuff does have like a timing to it. You have to do it when you get that um, when someone's telling you or your soul is telling you, you need to write it, you need to write it. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I'm going to jot yeah. that down. When your soul is telling you, you just have to do it finally. Yeah. Juanita, Juanita, you should glance at Carol's comment and also Michael's comment. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to read. Carol uh, Wow said, if you can't be yourself around the people you work and live among, that is tragedy. My dad was a welder and we lived on credit at the Pace Grocery often. And I know what you mean. Life can be tough. And perhaps we all need to sit and talk with others with open hearts and open eyes to really see what we have. So glad I bumped into this tonight. And then Michael Whitmire, both of you are great in this format. This feels like eavesdropping. Yeah, you are kind of on a wonderful conversation with intelligence and humor at the same time. It only increases my admiration for Cecilia. Michael is one of my salsa dancing partners. I would never even call him a partner. He's like the master on the dance floor. And there's like a whole troop of women that wait to be asked to dance by him. And then occasionally I get to go. (laughs) Well, thank you, Michael. I need to come to Texas to visit you and your sister soon. And um, I hope we can do this again so we can get into the second half of my questions. So thank (laughs) you for being on, Cecilia. Thank you, DJ April. Um, Tune in two weeks on Wednesday to hear my interview with the author of the wonderful book, We Are No Longer Babyland. Her name is Elsa Val Mejano. She's a Filipina. She's amazing. Her book is... As someone who struggled with um, infertility, it really touched me and made me cry. And her and I met through a story I wrote about my miscarriage. So uh, that will be in two weeks. But thank you, Cecilia. I mean, check all her stories out on TexasMonthly.com. If you have to subscribe to a magazine, it's a great magazine to subscribe to. It really does have a wonderful um, writerly quality to it. Don't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, they're very good at what they do. Thank you, Juanita. You're so good at what you do. I love uh, this new life you have as as an interlocutor and entertainer and performer. And it's just beautiful. And it's great fun to get to be on here this time. With you. Uh, yay! Let's dance it out. <laughs> Thank you, April. I need to handle. I need to handle. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Tune in in two weeks.